Well, good morning as always. Uh, we say it, Russell said it earlier, it's just good to be with you. It's good to hear you sing. It's good to be in your presence. It's good to be in the house of the Lord uh, on today. Now, I take notes typically on just about every service, and it doesn't mean that I'm taking notes for critique. I rarely will critique, but I just take notes, and it allows me to go back later on, maybe that afternoon or later on during the week, and I'm just able to remember some of the things that stuck out and some of the ways that we got put into the presence of God. And I just had too many notes already in the service. There have been too many times in which we have already been introduced to this great God that we serve. And I have a fear right now that I'm joking, but uh, in some level of seriousness of, uh, man, I hope I can take us there in, in preaching as well as we've been taken there in the rest of the parts of the service. We are starting a series today, and that series is going to be on the book of Daniel. And I know that there are some of you in here that said, hot diggity. <laughs> this is going to be wonderful, especially if you're involved on that either Tuesday night or Wednesday morning Bible study, which Sally Burke uh, so gift, gifted and teaches on Revelation. It will take about 71 years to finish that Bible study, and you make your way through the book. And you're saying, this is great to see how all of this fits towards end time stuff. So let me go ahead and burst your bubble. We're not going to touch the second half of Daniel. Why? Because I'm chicken. <laughs> just kidding. No, we're just not going to touch it because we've got a, a very special reason, a, a very specific reason in which we want to hit the first six chapters. The six chapters are some of the more famous narratives in all of the scriptures. And it won't take us long at all when we get there for you to say, ah, oh, I remember that. For those of you who grew up in the days of vacation Bible school with felt board, you'll remember Daniel, you'll remember the lion's den, you'll remember the fiery furnace, you'll remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, etc. There's great stories in here, but please hear this. We will miss the purpose of the book of Daniel if we say, man, I hope I can be more like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Because the book really isn't about Daniel. It's really about the God of Daniel. It isn't about how just events in history unfold, and boy, did that work out well for the church. Isn't she lucky? It's about the sovereign hand of God moving all pieces. Nothing happens outside of his control. He foreordains everything that comes to pass, and this is what we'll be able to see with crystal clarity in the book of Daniel is God's faithfulness. Now, all that being said, we should not back away from knowing that likely we're going to be inspired. If you can't be inspired by watching the characters live out their life in the book of Daniel, then you need to check your pulse. There is something that is inspiring that, that, that the first time I uh, actually read through this book, I was ready to drive my head through a wall. It's like, yeah, I want to get God's faithful. I'll do anything for the Lord. If you have your Bibles, open with us to the book of Daniel. I'm going to read in here the first of the seven verses, and then we're going to give a long introduction in here. We are going to look at the text this morning, but we're going to have a long introduction. So if you are physically capable, would you stand as we read the first seven verses of the book of Daniel? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You may be seated. Now, this is, again, an introduction to the book of Daniel, and what is it that Daniel teaches? In order to understand that, I think we've got to know a little bit about the history of Daniel and how, in fact, did we get here. You remember the history of God's people goes something like this, and I'm going to condense it for us. Rather than give you all six seminary classes that I went to, I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes that will give us the history. God goes to this man named Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. The purpose of that is not because you're so special and so obedient and so godly and wise and wonderful that I'm going to do something special for you. The truth is you are a pagan going in another direction, but I'm going to do something significant in you, raise you up, make you into a great nation. You're going to have so many ancestors, so many children and children's children that are going to come after you. You're going to be amazed at how I'm going to turn you into this big, huge nation. Now, what was humorous about that was this guy was really old. His wife was really old, and they shouldn't have had kids at this age, but it's God we're talking about. And sure enough, she conceived, she bore a child. Now, they went about it in a very interesting way, went outside the bounds of God at some point, saying, I think we should take matters in our own hands and do this, and it didn't work out so well for them. They did. They had a kid. That kid got married. That kid had kids. Those kids got married. They had kids, and I mean lots and lots and lots of kids, and they spread out everywhere. And they spread out so far that the leader of the world said, I think they may overthrow us. And so let's go do something about it. And so they enslaved them and they had them work for hundreds of years. And God had promised Abraham all the way back, here's what's going to happen to your ancestors. I'm going to let it go on for a little bit of time. When the time is right, I'm going to put it into it. And then they're going to come out with all kinds of wealth. Because again, I'm going to build you into a great nation so that you can bless the world. He calls this guy named Moses to be the leader of this nation. Now, by today's standards of leadership, Moses would have been an utter failure. Did not actually get the people where they were supposed to go. The people never really truly followed him. Evidently, the people thought he wasn't a leader worth following, but he was a man who trusted God. So he calls them out of this nation, and God miraculously takes them through some interesting ways, interesting things, interesting signs, takes them out of the land of slavery, and then eventually, through Joshua, brings them into this promised land. And Joshua is a great and mighty warrior, but we should not look at that and say there must have been something wrong with Moses and something right with Joshua. We should look at it and say God was working out his sovereign plan when he wanted to work out his sovereign plan. And he used Moses, 
and he used Joshua. Joshua is a king, I'm sorry, is a leader there in the book of, uh, of Joshua. And then after that comes this series of judges that they have that God raises up. And so the people of God would fall away from God. They would forget him. They would become fat, dumb, and happy thinking that they had created a great life for themselves. And so they would forget God and God would raise up a nation that would come in and slap them on the behind. God would raise up this judge. The people would call out and say, oh God, we didn't mean it. We really do want to follow you. So will you help us? God listened to their cry for help and he sent this judge. And this happens over and over and over and over again. No generation really did learn from the previous generation. They had to learn it the hard way on their own. Sounds like me, sounds like my father before me, his father before him, sounds like my kids now, and it sounds like what their kids will be doing later on. Sometimes we just have to learn through experience. So God, is faithful to this people because the plan all along is to raise these people up, to put them on display in a watching world that desperately needs to know who he is so that they can bless the whole world. Finally comes the time in which they recognize we need serious help. So give us a king. And the prophet on the scene says, no, you don't want a king. Yes, we do, because everybody else around us has a king. And so it looks like a great idea. They seem to be thriving and flourishing. Your king is Jehovah God. Trust him. Trust his ways. Surrender to him. Submit to him. Nope, we want a king. Okay. So they got a king. And he looked the part. Tall, handsome, impressive looking figure. But his heart did not match what he looked like. He never really chased hard after God. His name was Saul. Now, the king that God had anointed had gone to was this young little runt of the litter in his own family. Nobody would have picked this guy out to be the king, but God had anointed him as the king. And Samuel, the prophet, said, you're going to be the king. He said, okay. Now, the current king was jealous of the future king, and so he tried on multiple occasions to kill him in one interesting way. The younger anointed king was pretty gifted at playing the harp. And he had the evil spirits that would torment the present king. And so he would play the harp for him and it would seem to bring some ease to him. And so that king would take his spear and he would chunk it at the harp player. He eventually had to run for his life, but he was really good friends with the king's son. His king's son gave him a heads up. And God carefully carefully orchestrated events all throughout the kingdom And it ended in the manner in which the old king, God, took his life, the present king, and now the new king was anointed and he began to reign. Now, here's what the Bible says about this king. His name is David. It says that he was a man after God's own heart. Let that sit in for just a minute. What does that actually mean? Well, it means that he never sinned. It means that his mind and heart was always and only on the things of God. And oh, did he just delight 100% of the day, and sin wasn't even tempting for him. No, what it means is this. No, what it means is this. A man after God's own own heart is a man who constantly repented. It wasn't that he sinned less, it's that he repented more. 
because he recognized the because he recognized the place to be was in the presence of God. Man after God's man after the God's own heart did some wonderful things, and he messed up. No pun intended here. Royally in the process, he abused his power. He actually took the life of another because he was that selfish. But he repented. And God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, God made a promise to that king. He said, I'm going to keep somebody in your lineage on the throne. And there's coming a time in which that throne will never, ever end. He had lots of sons, but one son in particular came to the throne. Scripture says that other than Jesus, he was the wisest man who ever lived, and that kingdom expanded incredibly. Wealth beyond our comprehension, wisdom galore poured into this man because that was the one thing he asked God for. Then he dies. And then things go haywire. And the kingdom that was united is now divided into two parts. There's 10 tribes on the north and there's two tribes on the south. And then the kingdoms up in the north, there were five different dynasties in there, and no king was ever a good king. There was no righteous king they ever had in the northern kingdom. They all were evil all the time. The southern kingdom had a mixture of some good kings and some bad kings, some righteous kings and some unrighteous kings. The northern kingdom was so bad that God finally brought in this foreign nation named Assyria in order to bring them to their knees. Assyria was so brutal to them that the northern kingdom of Israel has never again existed in history. However, some of those people made their way into the southern kingdom, and so all tribes are still represented. The southern kingdom hung on for a little bit longer because, yes, they had kings that, that followed after the heart of the Lord. It's interesting, you had a grandfather, and then you had a father, and then you had a son, and so you had this grandfather that seemed to really follow the Lord. His ways were to the Lord, and then you had this father that just went the complete opposite direction. And then you have this boy who comes to the throne named Josiah who said, I'm going to be more like my grandpa than my dad. When he was a young age, he repented, and he brought about the reforms within the place. But there was a moment in time in which Josiah just wasn't really thinking all that clearly. And he decided to go in and to oppose a certain army. And he was killed. He was wiped out at that point. Now, the armies that were involved in that was this budding nation that had been in existence long before this. Long before this particular period, they had risen to power. There was a tower they had built, believing that if it got all the way up, they could actually reach heaven on their own initiative. God confused their language way back then. This nation had hung around, and now they're rising up again to power. And the dad, Nabopolassar, decides to go in and attack. He's getting older in life, and he says, you know what? We got an opportunity right now. We got an opportunity to take over more territory and become a world-dominant power. And so, son, will you go handle the business? And a guy named Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll do it. And he goes in, and he whips some tail. And in 605... He marches in, and he takes over Judah. And this right here is the first of three times in which he would lay siege 
to the city and he would export the people. There was an exile of the folks. And this time in which we're writing in right now is in this third year. It's in the reign of Jehoiakim. He's the king that's in Judah right now, and Nebuchadnezzar gives him no options. Now, what does he do? What do the scriptures tell us that he does? He besieged it. That's when it took place, 605. But why did it take place? Verse 3 or 2 tells us, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Please don't miss this, folks. This is not saying, man, the people of God really ran across some tough circumstances based simply upon their own bad decisions. The scripture is very clear right now. The Lord orchestrated events in history, raised up a foreign power that is actually opposed to God. God raised them up to bring judgment upon his people so that they would turn back to him at some point down the road. God brings this about and he puts them into the hands of a king that at this moment in time is, is nowhere close to honoring God. Can you wrap your mind around that? That God Almighty orchestrates events to discipline his children through the hands of people who have no desire whatsoever to serve God. You ever seen anything like this? You ever seen where the people of God are living in a land that they are surrounded by those who want nothing to do with God? Who in fact will put pressure upon the people of God to leave their way of life and to bow the knee of submission to their own man-made God. You ever heard of anything like that? He takes some of the vessels of the house of God, those things that God had set up in order to be a part of the worship of him, and it says that he brings them into the land of Shinar to the God of his house, or I'm sorry, and he placed those vessels in the treasury of God. Let me take those things that are meant for the worship of Jehovah God, and let's just put them in with our gods. And, and as long as their God can sort of intermingle with and be subservient to our God, I guess it's okay. Now look at the kind of people that he brings in, the kind of folks that, that they are looking for. Who is it that he wants to bring in? He commands them to bring in some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, but they're youths without blemish and of good appearance, and they're skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. I want to go get the stud of the studs, the great leaders, those that we look at and say, these are going to be influencers in the kingdom. I want to bring them in. Why? So that we can teach them our way. We are going to isolate them from their own God and from their mentors. Bring them into our place. Get them away from any older, godly, wise people, their godly people, so that they won't influence these young minds, these impressionable young minds, guide these young minds, and bring them into our place so that we can indoctrinate them in the ways that we want them to live. It's an ingenious plan. It has the long-term insight. 
How do we play the long game in this? He's not asking necessarily people at that particular moment to bow the knee of submission, although he will in just a few chapters. But he's trying to gather the best and the brightest. We tend to think that way, don't we, as humans? That just if the best and the brightest, if we got the most charismatic, most influential people, if we got them on our side, then man, it would change the world, wouldn't it? It's natural to think that way. It's easy. It's understandable. Who did Jesus choose? Did he choose the richest and the brightest, the best, the most educated, the most well-versed? Did he choose the one that everybody looked around and said, now that is a leader. That's somebody that I want to follow. Or did Jesus choose some people? who are willing to bow the knee of submission to him, who recognized their neediness. Now, this is so great. A king thought he was choosing the people that he wanted for this job. But I assure you, our text is going to show us, the king chose the subjects he wanted to build his kingdom. God is orchestrating events. Now, what does it have all appearances of? For just a moment, place yourself as if you're hearing this story. For a while, let's say you've been one who's been a faithful Jew, meaning that you have trusted Jehovah. You've asked God to move and to to stir, and you've asked for for the people to repent in addition to yourself. You ask, God, would you have your way with us as a people? Would you raise us up again and use us to bless the entire world? Imagine you're one of the faithful ones who's been living, who's been praying for the kings to repent, etc. And you see this other foreign nation marching in and they take over. And they, they take over your place of worship. They take the vessels that are in there. They now um, uh, uh, dedicate them to their own personal God. And you're watching as your entire world crumbles before you, what, what would you be experiencing? Would you be looking around saying, sure does look like God is on the move. Look at all the ways that God right now is being faithful to us, his people. Isn't this incredible? We're being imprisoned. We're being forced to do it. Oh, this is fantastic. I see your hand, God. Or are you going to do what the psalmist did on many occasions? Where are you? There's nothing wrong with saying, where are you? Just don't ever forget. I know, I know it is difficult. It's borderline impossible for us. It is so hard to trust God when it seems as though he's not working. It's hard to do that on a global scale. It's hard to do that on a national scale. It's hard to do that on a local scale. It's hard to do that when you don't see him working in your work. It's hard to trust God when you don't see him working in your home. It's hard to trust God when you don't see him working in the hearts of those that you love the most. It's hard to trust God when you don't see him working out in your own personal mind. It is hard to trust God when it seems as though he's not working. But I promise you, we can always trust God Why? Because he's always working. See, it's hollow for some of us. We may hear these words and say, yeah, 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 preacher. That's just talk that you're doing right now. Now, I'm telling you, based on this right here, there is never a time in which God is not working. 
And you're given the freedom in the scriptures to question, to wonder, to ponder. You're given the freedom in the scriptures to have all kinds of doubt and concerns. Can I give you a piece of advice? Go to the Lord with your doubt. Go to the Lord with your skepticism. Go to the Lord with your concern. Don't don't try to live in isolation from him. He's a big boy. He can handle it. He closes this section out right here for us just letting us know what it is he wants them to do. He gives them some of the daily portion of the food that the king eats, uh, eats and drinks. They're to be educated for three years and they're to stand before the king at that time to be reevaluated. Now, look at this last part. He tells us that their names get changed. He changes their very names in order that they might better reflect who he wants them to be. Augustine wrote a book, and it was entitled The City of God. And in there, he lays out two basic premises. There is the city of God, and then there is the earthly city, or we'll call it the city of man. And here's the basic difference between these two cities. They're all driven by loves. Both cities are driven by loves. One is driven by the love of God. One is driven by the love of self. One is characterized by humility. The other is characterized by pride. These two kingdoms are always at work in the world. They have always been around. Since the devil made his way into the garden, these two kingdoms have been present. God's kingdom is going to advance forcefully throughout the world by going on the love offensive and offering hope and peace to others. Sometimes the church has misunderstood that, and the church has tried to impose its will on the people. That's not the ways of God. It's acting like the kingdom of the earth, although claiming to be a part of the kingdom of God. This kingdom over here is all about self and self-promotion. All about what is right and best for me. I want what I want, when I want it, and ultimately this kingdom joyfully bows the knee of submission to the rightful king. This kingdom over here stands in strong opposition to the rightful king and will only bow the knee of submission to self. These two kingdoms are always at place, and this is what this training was all about. This is what this name change is about. Leave your former life. Leave the ways of God and come be a part of what it is that we want to build. Name changes are pretty profound. The name Daniel means God is my judge, but it was changed to Belteshazzar in there. I think I got that right. And it says, Bel protect his life, one of their gods. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace, but his new name, Shadrach, means command of Aku, which is the moon god. Shadrach means, um, uh, I just missed that. Mishael means who is like God. And his new name, Meshach, means who is as Aku is. Azariah means the Lord is my help, but Abednego means servant of Nebo. It is hard to trust God when it seems as though he is not working, when it seems as though he has left the building and has now left these teenagers in a position to where they're going to have to fend for themselves. This 
is where we close. I'm so excited we're going to get into the meat of this book because I'm just giving you the overview here. But, but, but please let this sink in for a moment. These teenagers, likely in the neighborhood of somewhere between 14 and 16, now have a choice to make. They have been ripped from their families and now put into the presence of the king, and they've got a decision in front of their hands. Will we choose to trust God when it seems as though he's not working? Will we choose to submit to him to continue to walk in the ways of the kingdom of God? Or will we choose now to submit to the king of this current kingdom? Will we choose to walk in its ways? Will we adopt its values? See, these teenagers don't have right now older, wiser people that can come alongside them and guide them. They have to choose who is God to them. What stories are they going to choose to live by? What are they going to remember? And ultimately, it comes down to this. Who do they want to be? Do they want to be people who are called by the Almighty God to live among the Babylonians in order to be raised up by God, to influence the Babylonians, to bless the whole world? Or are they going to be those who are going to blend right in? Adopt the same values, enjoy the same privileges, and taste the same bitterness that comes with it. Same choice as yours. Can I ask it to you this way? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a citizen in the kingdom of Babylon? Do you want to be one that is just trying to make your way according to what the world has to say, knowing that if you Don't bow the knee of submission. Then there's going to be a price to pay by the culture at large. Or do you want to bow the knee of submission to the king? And he won't guarantee your safety. He won't guarantee your prosperity. He won't even guarantee your influence right now in this world. What he will guarantee is this. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Whose kingdom? You want to be a part of it. It's always hard to trust God when it seems as though he's not working, but we can always trust God because he's always working.